All right, Revelation 22. Today we'll be looking at uh, verses 13 all the way to the end of the chapter, the end of your Bible. And this is how the canon of Scripture closes. It actually closes with a, uh, an invitation. In fact, this is God's last invitation to, to us. And these verses here in Revelation 22 are a call to unbelievers in particular to repent. And by the way, uh, let me explain what repentance is because uh, that's one of those big theological words and that everyone knows. Repentance literally is a change of mind in regards to our sin. Uh, when we are born into this world, we, we love our sin. We, we think sin is okay, and we, we think it's okay to just do what we want to do. But that's not the case, and so we need to change our mind in regards to sin, see the sin as God sees it. We're recognizing that sin is, is a transgression of God's law, Scripture says. So this is a call to repent, to change our mind about something, specifically sin. And specifically in regards to how we see Christ. And Scripture closes with an urgent invitation. Urgent invitation. Christ is pleading with sinners to come to Him to receive this free gift of eternal life. Notice I said is a free gift. You don't have to pay for eternal life. Christ already paid for it for you. Now, Christ is telling us that we need to do this now because there is coming a point in time when judgment day will come and time will run out. It's a bit like an, air, an airliner taking off on a runway. You know, eventually the runway ends. And if that big plane doesn't get off the ground, it's going into the ocean or whatever's at the end of the runway. So God's final invitation to sinners comes here in verse 17. Look at verse 17 of Revelation 22. Here's the final invitation that Christ gives. He says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. There's the invitation. Notice the word come is in quotation marks. So the invitation is to come. So before we go any further, we, uh, we should uh, actually back up and get more of the context here. So what I wanted you to see, though, as we, as we read here is not only is there an invitation, but there's actually quite a few incentives surrounding verse 17 that help motivate people to respond to this invitation that Christ gives here to come. Why come? Why? Well, let's read, okay? Let's start in verse 13. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. In verse 17 is our invitation again. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, 
come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with all. Amen. Well, as I said earlier, verse 17 gives an invitation. What is the invitation? Well, there are two invitations in this verse. In case you didn't notice that, there's two invitations. The first invitation is for Christ to come. First invitation is for Christ to come. It's interesting here that the Holy Spirit desires Christ's return. The Holy Spirit desires Christ's return. Now, the text does not specify here in verse 17 why the Holy Spirit especially desires Jesus to return. But if you were to kind of just glance through the rest of Scripture, the rest of Scripture, the Bible actually suggests several reasons why the Holy Spirit desires Christ to return. Let me suggest to you uh, what the rest of Scripture is suggesting. Well, let me say this. First of all, that throughout the long, dark centuries of mankind's sin and rebellion, the Holy Spirit has worked to bring about conviction and repentance. That is one of His ministries. And so when Jesus Christ says He's coming, uh, the grieved Holy Spirit says, Come. He pleads with Christ to return. He wants His enemies to be defeated. He wants sinners to be judged. The end of the Spirit's long battle is to produce conviction in sinners' hearts. That's His ministry. It is the desire in the ministry of the Spirit to glorify Christ. Now yes, within the Trinity they are equal. Father, Son, and Spirit are equal in their essence, in their nature, in their attributes. But within that, the Godhead, the, the, those three in one, they, they have various functions. And the Holy Spirit is continually glorifying Christ in the Father. Christ is continually glorifying the Father. And the Father is continually deferring glory to His Son. So we have to understand, you know, why, why is the Holy Spirit desiring Christ's return? Well, <clears throat> may I remind you, how did most of the world see Jesus Christ when He was here on earth? What was the last picture of Christ that they had of Him when He was here on earth? It's, it's Him nailed to a cross in utter humiliation. So the last view the world had of Jesus was on a cross between two criminals. He was rejected, he was despised, he was mocked and scorned. And so the Spirit longs to see his fellow member of the Trinity exalted and, and, and seen as, as, as he should be, worthy of all worship, honor, glory, and praise. And that's going to happen when Christ returns at his second coming, which will be a triumphant second coming. 
Very different from his first one, where he was born in, in, in a lonely stable. Very different from the first one. Now Christ comes back in the second one. I mean, all eyes will see him and, and, will, and they'll know they'll bow before King Jesus. So the Holy Spirit desires Christ's return. Because he wants Christ to, to be ultimately glorified. But we see here as well that the church desires Christ's return. The church desires Christ's return. Did you notice there in verse 17, not only is it the Spirit that says come, but notice the next phrase says, the Spirit and the bride say come. So hopefully you know, theologically speaking, the bride is the church. Jesus Christ being the groom is going to marry his bride, and Scripture says the bride is a church. So for centuries, God's people have waited for, we prayed for, hoped for, watched for Christ's return. And they've been doing that ever since Christ was here on earth. And much of the church is weary of the battle against sin. I'm weary against the battle of sin. Are you? We... we Every morning we get up, we've got to put on that armor of God. We're going out into a battle, and Satan wants to throw his darts at you and get you. You're in a battle every day, and we long to see Christ exalted and honored, and we hate to see our parliament and our MPs and our city council members and our workmates and friends attacking Christ and taking His name in vain and not caring about Christ. So we long for sin and Satan to be ultimately defeated, and he will one day. We long for Christ to return and take us to heaven. I want to live with Christ forever. I want, to, I want uh, Christ to reign over me and this entire world. I want there to be a new heaven and a new earth where the sin of cursed is, is, is finally taken away forever. That's coming. Those reasons and probably others is why here in verse 17 it says, The bride says, Come, Lord Jesus. There's a second invitation here in verse 17. The second invitation is for sinners to come to saving faith in Christ. So the first invitation, remember, was for Christ to come, but there is a second invitation. Here's where you, you well, we all come into the first one, but Some of you may come into this one as well. The second invitation for sinners to come to saving faith in Christ. Notice first of all here that the one who hears the invitation wants Christ to return. Let the one who hears say, come. The phrase there, uh, let the one who hears say come, is invites those who hear the Spirit and the church, this, this bride, to join with them in calling for Christ's return. That's the idea there. They cannot do so until they actually come to saving faith in Christ, though. It's, it's only a genuine Christian that can truly long for Christ to appear. An unbeliever, think about it, an unbeliever doesn't care about Christ's return. They love their life, and it, it, if they even, even for one second start thinking about Christ's return, that bothers them. It's only genuine Christians who long for Christ to appear and come back. 
Well, number two, the one who hears the invitation here is the one who is spiritually thirsty. It's the one who is spiritually thirsty. Notice again in verse 17, it says, and let the one who is thirsty come. Now, this is not talking about physical thirst. This is spiritual thirst. Thirst is a biblical metaphor. It pictures something that is within every one of us. We all understand what it is to be thirsty to one degree or another. Now, if you've ever gone more than a day without water, you you understand what happens, right? I mean, you start getting dehydrated, and you're, you just you you can't think of anything else other than drinking. There's that strong sense that that God has given to us. It helps keep us alive, and so this. Thirst here is a biblical metaphor. It's picturing this strong sense of spiritual need that really is, by the way, a prerequisite to repentance. Nobody is going to change their mind in regards to their sin until they recognize, hey, you know, I don't like. There's something I don't like here. I need something to satisfy me. I need Christ to satisfy me. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, God calls everyone who thirsts to come to the waters of salvation. Jesus pronounced those in Matthew chapter 5, blessed who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In John 7, He gave the invitation, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me, Jesus says, and drink of the waters of life. Jesus said, if you do that, you'll never never thirst again. So the one who hears the invitation is spiritually thirsty. Number three, the one who hears the invitation takes the water of life. Notice Scripture says it is without price. So unlike the bottled water that we have to buy everywhere we go, this water is free. It's free. It's without price. God's invitation is unlimited here in the sense, by the way, that it's, it's broad. It's, it's a gracious offer of salvation. And it's true that God saves sinners. Of course He does. But God only saves those who recognize their need and repent. God doesn't save everyone. God only saves those who recognize that they're sinners. They are hopeless without Christ. They come to Christ and, and they recognize that God is the one who is able to forgive them of their sins. So the water of life here is referring to salvation. It is offered without price. In other words, what, what Scripture is saying, it's, it's free. It is freely given. All God says is, I've paid the price with my Son's blood. You just have to receive it. Okay? Let me, let me put it to you this way, okay? Let's say, let's say I walk up to you and I say, I say to you, I have a brand new Toyota van that I want you to have. It is free. I've already paid for the Toyota van. Here is the key to the Toyota van. Now, you may not like Toyota vans. That's not the point. Don't, don't lose sight of the, the illustration here. All right, and say, this van is free. It is free for you to take. You just have to come up here and take the key. It's yours. Now, most people wouldn't believe that. It'd be too good to hear. But this invitation, this 
free gift that God gives to you is far better than my Toyota van, I can assure you. And it's free. You don't have to pay for it. You just have to come and receive it by faith. God says, that's all you have to do. It's that easy. Too often we think we got to you know, we got to give money to the church. We got to go get baptized. We got to we got to help the old ladies. We got to do all these wonderful good works. No, you don't have to do that stuff. <laughs> it's free. So the water of life is referring to salvation, but it's without price. It's freely given. And the reason salvation is free is because Jesus already paid the price. That's why Scripture says He shed His precious blood to wash away your sin. He did it in His sacrificial death on the cross. He was your substitute. He took your place so that you don't have to die on the cross for your sin. And so God freely offers the water of life to those whose hearts are thirsty for forgiveness. You ever been that thirsty? My friend, if you have never experienced that kind of spiritual thirst, then you're not a Christian. You, you, heaven is not your home. And God is not your Father. You need to be this kind of thirsty. Your mind needs to be thirsty for truth. Your soul needs to be thirsty for God and for Christ. What are the reasons for accepting God's final invitation? Well, there's many. There are many reasons that we see within this last portion of Scripture. Why should I accept this invitation? I know there's many people who are skeptical. They, you know, they 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 gotta, you know, they, there's all kinds of good deals out there, right? I mean, there's salesmen everywhere. They come to our doors. You go in the mall. You know, there's salesmen standing there wanting to hand you stuff. Everybody wants to sell you stuff everywhere you go, right? There's all kinds of deals. Everybody's constantly putting up signs saying sales. You know, this is out of this world sale. It'll never get better than this, really. So, you know, we, we kind of become skeptical sometimes. We always want to read the fine print saying, oh, there, there's, there's, surely there's something here. But my friend, no, there isn't. There is no fine print. This is the invitation. And God gives you many good reasons of why you should accept God's final invitation. So surrounding the invitation here in verse 17, there's actually four reasons that Scripture, that God gives us for sinners to accept this invitation. Let me just throw them out to you here, and then we can talk about them, okay? Number one, it's because of Christ's person. Number two, it's because of the exclusivity of heaven. In other words, heaven is exclusive for certain group of people that Scripture talks about. And then because of the truthfulness of Scripture, and then last of all, because of the certainty of Christ's return. Christ is coming. It is certain. He said He would. So let's talk about these reasons of why you should accept God's final invitation. The first reason for sinners to accept God's final invitation is because it comes personally from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Look at verse 13. Verse 13, Jesus is talking about himself here. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. <clears throat> Look at verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify you, to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright 
morning star. That's what Jesus says about himself. All right? But why should we trust Christ? Okay? Why should you trust Christ? Well, you should trust Christ because of who he is. It's that simple. When you know who Christ is, there, there shouldn't be any reason for us to not to trust him. So look uh, how Christ identifies himself. Let's just think about this. Christ actually has a threefold identification of himself. And, and the idea here is he's repeating this same truth, the same emphasis in, in several different ways so we, we understand what he's trying to talk about. First of all, Jesus calls himself the Alpha and the Omega. I hope you know what that is by now. <clears throat> Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. It would be our equivalent of the letter A. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Right? You get the point? And in case you don't get the point, Jesus says, well, I am also the first and the last. And so the, the, those are kind of equivalent phrases, if you will, parallel phrases. And in the case we don't get that, Jesus says, I am also the beginning and the end. And so what, what's the point in that? Why, why is Christ telling us who he is here? What it is doing is Christ is expressing his infinity. He is expressing his eternality. <clears throat> he's, he's saying, I've always been. I am the, the great I am that he told Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. I am. In other words, I've always been. No one created Christ. He's always been. He existed before 2,000 years ago when he humbled himself and came in human flesh. He existed way before then. He's always been. But he is also eternal. So he's not just always been. He always will be. He's the end as well. The Omega. And he's saying, I am boundless life. I transcend all limitations. That's what he's saying in this. And so there's threefold descriptions describing completeness. There is nothing lacking with Christ. Not only is he the beginning and the end, he's everything in between. He, he is fullness, completeness. He is timelessness. And he is the sovereign one who reigns supreme over all of his creation. He has ultimate authority. That's what he's saying about himself here. And then there is this, in verse 16, uh, what some might say a confusing statement. Jesus declares himself to be, notice, he, he says two things at the same time here in verse 16. He says, I am the root, which is an ancestor. So he's saying, I am the ancestor, but he's also saying, notice, verse 16, I am the descendant of David. What? I mean, scratch your head for a moment, okay? Right? Just scratch your head and say, what? How can he be both ancestor as well as descendant? One comes before David, one comes after David. How can he be both? That doesn't make sense to us, right? The phrase is summing up the biblical teaching, really, the, the doctrine that Christ has two natures. He is the God-man, if you will. And, and it's only the God-man that can be both David's ancestor as well as his descendant. Only Christ could do that. He's showing his deity. He's showing that he is God as well as man. So he's the one who's always been, but he's, he's also a descendant of David. 
which shows his humanity. And so in his humanity, he is David's descendant. And then finally, Jesus describes himself as the bright morning star. You ever seen a morning star? You ever get up early enough to see one? What, what is Jesus saying here? He's, he's <clears throat> uh, well, let me put it this way to you, okay? To call someone a star, first of all, was to exalt that person. You were exalting someone if you called them a star, I mean, right? We, we call people stars even today, don't we? You know, that person's a fill-in-the-blank star. You know, sports star, a rock star, a whatever star, right? When we, when we do that sort of thing, uh, I, I don't like it, but anyway, we, we tend to do this as human beings. We, we're exalting someone when we call them a star. And so as the morning star announces the arrival of the day, so Christ's coming is going to announce the end of the darkness of man's night. Right? If you see a morning star, you should immediately think, okay, whew, praise the Lord, the, the sun is going to rise. The day is coming. The glorious dawn of Christ's kingdom is coming. So Christ says, I am the light of the world. And so, as the light of the world, He's calling sinners to drink of the water of life. And so if we drink of Christ, the Bible says we will never thirst again. So the first reason for sinners to accept God's final invitation is because, first of all, it comes from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Number two, it's because heaven is exclusive. Heaven is exclusive. The exclusivity of heaven is a, uh, an impetus, a reason, if you will, for us to accept God's last invitation. Now, this section begins with a blessing here in verse 14. Do you notice that? The very first word. Look in your Bible. First word of verse 14 is the word blessed. Blessed. And this blessing, notice who it's given to. It's given to those who do what? Now, you don't have those probably. Unless they're hanging on your bathroom door, you know, when you get out of your shower, you, you put a robe on. Maybe some of you do. But this blessing is given to those who wash their robes. Typically, we don't wear robes nowadays. But, of course, back in Jesus' day, they did. Back in John's day, at this time, they did. And so this phrase here portrays the believer's participation in the death of Christ. Now, how, how do we know that? Well, we have to compare Scripture with Scripture. One of the uh, important rules of uh, biblical hermeneutics, rules of Bible interpretation, is you compare Scripture with Scripture. Scripture is its own best interpreter. And we know from Revelation chapter 7, it says that the, tribu the tribulation martyrs have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So even within this own book, it's helping us to understand what's going on here. Washing your robe means you're washing them in the blood of the Lamb. It's participating in the death of Christ. So why do robes need to be washed? Why do robes need to be washed? Well, let me ask you this, all right? Since most of us don't wear robes, why do you wash your clothes? You say, Pastor Scott, that's a dumb, silly question. Why do I wash my clothes? Because my clothes get dirty. Well, why do people wash robes? Why did they wash robes back then? Because robes got dirty. 
Why is Jesus saying, wash your robes? Because your spiritual robe is dirty. (laughs) Dirty clothes represent sinfulness. And they need to be washed. Well, how how are they going to get washed? How are dirty clothes going to get cleansed? It's only through the blood of Christ. Blood cleanses sinfulness. So those who have experienced the washing from sin will forever have the right, notice it says, you will forever have the right to the tree of life. Forever to the tree of life in verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Why? What's going to happen? So that they may have the right to the tree of life. (laughs) Where's that? Where's the tree of life? The tree of life is located in the capital city of heaven. We've talked about this back further, right? Revelation chapter 21. capital city of heaven is the new Jerusalem. Uh, in, and then within that new Jerusalem, there is a tree of life, the Bible says. And so this means that those who are granted access to the tree of life will be allowed to enter into the gates of heaven. But notice here, notice as we move into verse 15, that not everybody is in heaven. There are some who are excluded. There are some who are outside of heaven, who cannot get in. We'll never get in. Heaven is exclusively for those who have been cleansed from their sins by faith in the blood of Christ. And so in contrast, everyone else will remain forever outside this new Jerusalem. And the Bible says they'll spend forever and eternity in the lake of fire. Who's going to be cast into the lake of fire? Well, God says so in verse 15. God says in verse 15, outside of heaven are the dogs, and that's not literal dogs. Figuratively speaking, it's, it's, you know, you have to understand dogs weren't pets back at this time, okay? Dogs were not pets. We, they weren't invited in the house, you know, they didn't lay at your feet and, and go fetch the newspaper in your slippers, right? They didn't do that, right? They weren't, you know, nice little cuddly things that you pet. They were scavengers. They were obnoxious. All right, so think vulture. Think something like a vulture, right? You wouldn't invite a vulture into your home, would you? No, of course not, right? So so they were something that was despised. And so in verse 15, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So heaven is exclusive. Not everyone is, is going to get into heaven, God says. And notice those who are cast into the lake of fire, it's it's those who love and habitually practice any sin. So, you know, it's very easy for us to look at verse 15 and say, man, I'm not a sorcerer, so I'm okay. (laughs) No, you're not. Just because you're not a sorcerer doesn't make you okay. Or just because you've, you've never committed a sexually immoral sin or you've never actually gone and shot somebody and murdered them doesn't mean you're okay. By the way, okay, people don't go to heaven. Good people don't go to heaven. Sinners go to heaven. Sinners who have their sins washed away by the precious blood of Christ. But in, in a case, you know, you're thinking, I, I'm, you know, this picture is not me in verse 15. It ends with everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And that's you. That's me. 
So if you're one of those people who stubbornly clings to your sin, you refuse to repent of your sin, if you refuse to forsake your sin, you love your sin more than you love Christ, then you are not a Christian. You are outside the gate of heaven. If you refuse Christ's invitation to salvation, then you cannot go to heaven. Well, there's a third reason for sinners to accept God's final invitation, and it's because of the truthfulness of Scripture. Scripture is truth. Now, the speaker who testifies to the authority and the finality of the words of this book in verse 18, notice verse 18, who is it? It's Jesus. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. And then you move on to... Uh, <clears throat> Verse 18, it says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So we saw Jesus is the speaker, but what did he say? What did he say? Well, he said, number one, he gave us the negative. He said, don't take away from Scripture. Don't take away from God's Word. He also said, don't add to it. Right? So you, you, you might think, well, hey, I'm fine in this area. I'm not taking away, but we might add. Or we might say, hey, I'll never add, but we, we take away. So it's almost like, well, we would never do this. But maybe in our hearts, we might actually cut out verses out of the Bible. You know, we don't like that. We don't want to believe that. We don't want to practice and, and obey that portion of Scripture. And so when we do that, we are taking away from God's Word. Or sometimes we add to it and we make our, our preferences or our opinions, our traditions, just like the Pharisees, come equal with God's Word or even trump God's Word. My friend, beware. The Pharisees aren't the only ones who do that. You and I do that. It's not just the cults that do that. It's not the cults, not just the cults who have their own Bibles who do that. You and I can do that. When we refuse to listen to God's Word, we are taking away. When we make our traditions and our preferences and our opinions equal with or above God's Word or our experiences... That's often a temptation of ours as well. Not just the charismatics. We can do that as well. Make our experiences, you know, even though they don't match up with God's Word, we're adding to God's Word if our experiences do not line up with Scripture. And, and we somehow trust our experiences. Beware. It's a dangerous path. And so, the Bible is complete. The very last portion of Scripture says the canon of Scripture is closed. It's complete. And you say, well, when was, it, when was it complete? Well, as best as I can tell, somewhere around the year 95. Somewhere around that time period, around 95. In that first century is when the Bible was complete. Scripture was closed at the end of that first century. And so any false prophet or a fraud who, who adds some alleged new revelation 
to God's word, God says, I'm going to bring vengeance on you. Vengeance is mine, the, thus saith the Lord, right? And so God's judgment, by the way, is equally going to be severe on anyone who takes away from the words of Scripture. If you refuse to listen and obey and apply and be a doer of the word, you are taking away from the words of Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean that believers will never make errors in judgment, okay? I, I make thousands of errors of judgment, and so do you, all right? That, that's not the point here, okay? We all make errors in judgment. Hopefully, in this process of sanctification, we're all growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hopefully, we're being more conformed to the image of Christ. We're repenting of, of our sin and forsaking it. But that's not, what, what, what this here is, it's Christ's warning to those who engage in deliberate error, who, who engage in deliberate misinterpretation of Scripture, like the Pharisees. There's a fourth reason for sinners to accept God's invitation. It's because of the certainty of Christ's return. That's how Scripture ends. Scripture ends with a certain declaration that Jesus Christ is coming again, and He's coming soon. The book of Revelation and the Bible closes with one final reminder. It, it also ends with a benediction. And in His last recorded words in Scripture, by the way, if you have a red-letter edition, you'll be able to see it better than I can here. But uh, if you have, maybe you have quotation marks around these words. These are the last words of Jesus Christ in Holy Scripture, and notice what he says. He says, I am coming soon. The issue is, do you believe? Do you believe what Jesus says? He is coming soon. My friend, Christ's coming is imminent. Do you believe in the doctrine of imminence? In other words, that Christ is coming Soon, at any moment, He could come again. You don't need to be looking for any signs or wonders or anything like that. Jesus says, I'm coming soon, and it could be at any moment. Even the Apostle Paul believed it could have been during his lifetime. And here we are some 2,013 years approximately after Christ was born, and hopefully we're still looking for Christ to come soon. And so John speaks for all true believers here, when he responds to Jesus' words, look, look at his response. He says, Amen! Truly, truly, I believe it's true. And then he says, Come, Lord Jesus! Exclamation point. <laughs> That's how John responds to the imminence of Christ. The certainty of Christ's return should motivate you to respond with repentance toward your sin. It should motivate you to respond with hope, with belief, with, with assurance, with confidence that when Christ promises something, He is a God who always keeps His promises. Nothing will stop Him from coming soon. The comforting truth is that those who humble themselves and accept God's offer of salvation will find God to be very gracious. Why do I say that? Because look at the very last verse in your Bible. Of all the ways God could finish His holy word, why these words? Look at verse 21. This 
tells us that God is gracious. It says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. God is gracious. And it's fitting that the last words of the Bible are those words. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Truly. I believe. It's truth. And so this is an expression of God's grace toward fallen humanity. So I ask you this, my friend. I do not want to assume this. We never want to assume the gospel. Have you individually, personally, accepted God's invitation at some point in your life? Have you accepted God's invitation? You say, well, what's the invitation? Okay, lest you forget, what is the invitation? Again, look at verse 17. The invitation to you, my friend, is come to Christ. Don't come to church. Yes, come come to church, okay? We, We want you. I want you. I love you. I don't want you to go away. But the invitation here is not to come to church. The invitation is to come to Christ. Okay, you understand. That's the invitation. Have you accepted that invitation, though? Do you want God's grace? <laughs> Christ offers heaven, by the way. Remember, He only offers heaven to those who have accepted His gracious invitation. God lays the invitation out there. He's not going to force it upon you. You have to receive it by faith. Christ, my friend, is your only hope. So don't reject Him. I urge you, do not reject Him before it is too late. Because when you die, that's it. You don't get a second chance. You can't die and say, whoa, I'm in hell. I don't like this place. Okay, I accept. It doesn't work that way. You aren't going to get reincarnated either. You don't get a second chance. So don't reject him. Well, let's just think, let's end by thinking of some application here, okay? Number one, how, how can we apply this portion of scripture? Number one, you must keep God's word. You must keep God's Word. And by God's Word, I mean the Bible. I mean the Holy Scriptures. The Bible says you are to keep the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, what does that mean? To keep the words of the prophecy of this book. To keep. To keep means to guard, to watch over, to preserve something intact. The way it was given to you. It's not like me giving something... Let's say I give... I give a, a cake to my two-year-old, and I tell my two-year-old, okay, now, I want you to keep this cake. And then one minute later, I get it back, and all the frosting's gone off the top of the cake. Did my two-year-old keep the cake for me? No, she didn't. It, is, it wasn't kept intact, and probably that's what she would have done, by the way. I'm so... And we laugh about those kind of things. But do you get the point? God has given us something precious, and He says to keep it, guard it, believe it, watch over it, preserve it the way I gave it to you. Don't take away from it, and don't add to it. So what I'm trying to say is this. We, we must not add to the Word of God. We shouldn't take away anything from it. It's, it's very dangerous for us to do that. In fact, God says, if you tamper with my word, you can expect some very bad curses to come upon you. If you tamper with it, you can expect some very nasty things to happen to you. And so the one who guards the word and obeys what God says is the one who will be blessed. 
That's the person who will be blessed. The one who alters it, God says, I'm going to discipline that person in some way. So you need to keep it. Number two, you have the responsibility of serving the Lord. Every one of us has the responsibility of serving the Lord. The Bible says, blessed are they that do God's commands. (laughs) It's not just blessed are those who listen to God's commands and do nothing with them. No, you have to do something with it. If you really believe that Jesus is coming soon, you need to do something with that. You need to be faithful, watching, praying, in fact, for Christ to come soon. Verse 13 should encourage you, by the way, as you seek to serve the Lord. Look at verse 13. Jesus said He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. That means that Jesus Christ is eternal. He's always been. He never will have an end. And He's always going to be here. And it means that whatever God starts, He's going to finish. Sounds like Philippians, doesn't it? He who began a good work in you will finish it till the day of redemption. And so as I go about my work, I don't need to grow weary in well-doing because I have Jesus Christ who has promised to always be with me and my work is not in vain in the Lord. He's here with me. He's empowering me with His Holy Spirit. And if I do it for the right motive, I get eternal rewards on top of it. You have the responsibility of serving the Lord now, not just in eternity. Number three, you must keep your life clean. You are, your robe is washed because your robe is dirty, okay, as a result of your sin. But my friend, God expects you throughout your life. He, he has saved you, not just to save you from the fires of hell, but Ephesians says, chapter two, you were saved. You were created for good works to bring him honor and glory. You need to keep your life clean. In fact, one of the, one of the things the scripture says, I forgot to write the scripture up here for you, the scripture says that Christ's return should motivate us for holy living. Is it? And so it's because that God's people look for Christ's return that they attempt to keep their lives clean. You can't do that in your own strength, by the way. But you can dedicate your lives. Paul urged this in Romans 12, 1, that, hey, I urge you, hey, present your bodies to me, a holy sacrifice, one that's set apart, it's unique, it's separate from sin unto God. Number four, last of all, you must keep expecting Jesus Christ to return. That is a continual action that you are to do. Never give up on Christ. There may be times in your life where you felt like, what's the point? Is Christ coming at all? I mean, you might, you might doubt that. But you need to keep expecting Jesus Christ to return. In fact, this portion of Scripture three times in the closing chapter of the Bible, John wrote here that Christ is coming soon. Three times he says it. Now, Jesus has delayed his return for now over 2,000 years. He's delayed his return. And so, obviously, since the time of John, around the year 95 here, we are even closer, aren't we? The time is even closer. Whatever the end of that that time is, we are now closer to that time of his return. Don't give up. 
And so, my friend, it could be very soon. It could be today. So keep watching, waiting, longing, praying for Christ to return. Well, my friend, if our study today from this wonderful book of Revelation has truly been led by the Holy Spirit, then you and I need to join with the Apostle John in this very last prayer of Scripture. What is the very last prayer of Scripture? Notice what what John says in verse 20. He says, the end of verse 20, he says, Come, Lord Jesus. That should be your prayer. That should be my prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. And from that, we get the word Maranatha. You ever heard that word, Maranatha? Maranatha is, if you break it up into its parts, it means, come, Lord Jesus. It is a prayer. Every time someone says Maranatha or a church has the word Maranatha in their name, it is a prayer for the Lord Jesus to come. So how about you, my friend? Have you accepted God's invitation? Are you ready? Are you ready? For you, my Christian friend, are you ready? Are you longing? Are you watching? Are you, are you waiting? What, what are you doing with this truth? Are you ready?